0: This is 15 Minutes of Freedom. I'm your host, Ryan Idell, and today's episode is Lessons from a Baby. Today I'm going to share with you the lessons that you probably forgot from when you were a very, very, very young child, actually an infant. And not only what you've forgotten, but what we're going to do about it going forward. So This episode is actually in response to what I believe to be Episode 498. If you haven't listened to that, I'd encourage you to go back and take a listen to it because I've gotten a ton of positive feedback based around it, which surprised me because when I recorded it, I fully figured I was going to upset some people. In that video, I basically said, I hope you go broke because who I am now and my belief system around money is all based around me being broke, right? The things that didn't go the right way in my life. And so the feedback that I received, right, a handful of emails, I won't, won't try to count them, but more than I expected that were positive, has led me to have this conversation with you. right? And as it pertains to the lessons that we learn from a child, right, I have not been fortunate enough to be around a young child as you know they're, they're nursing. And I would bet if I were to ask a, a mother, she would say, the most important thing for that child is to be able to get a full night's sleep. And while, while that very well, well may be true, and I'm sure it is for you parents, if you are a parent. But from where I sit, the most important thing that I see happening is getting that child off the tit, right? Literally getting them to stop breastfeeding because me as a husband, I, my, my milk ducks don't work the right way, right? I can't really support that. So what I would have to do is be able to feed my child. Right? Formula Gerber whatever the food would be, I'd have to figure out some way to feed them. So it's important for us to get off of that. But as we look at our financial lives, more than likely we have created an environment in which we are stuck to the tip. Let me explain. Right, you go through go through high school. You know, you grow up, you go through high school. You become a young man or young woman. And as you yourself are becoming, I'm going to speak to you as though you're a man, forgive me, ladies, but as you're becoming a man, there's a good probability your father, your mother never sat down and discussed intimate details of their finances with you, right? I mean, like there was a conversation loosely around, right, in my household, money doesn't grow on trees. Make sure you clean off your plate. There's starving kids in Africa, right? Right. We, we don't get new cars because those are more for, right, a different type of person, maybe a more wealthy person. And some things along those lines. Perhaps those feel familiar to you. See, but we never had conversations based around debt utilization, saving strategies, investment strategies. Right? How much my mother or father or both of them made? How much were they putting into their 401ks or IRAs at that point? Did they have an independent broker that was helping them manage their money. See, those things just simply weren't discussed, right? At least not in my household. It's almost like it's taboo. They're taboo because it was taboo in their generational upbringing. And so as you get to college, right? And even before college, I don't know about you, but one of the the biggest things for me, right? You had to go get a job so you could I had to get a job, so I could to pay, afford gas and insurance and cell phones and all the things that I ha- thought I had to have. And that was fine. That was great. Taught me great work ethic. And I like to make money. say it's another way. I love to make money. I love to make money. I love to help people make money. And then I now love to even help people save money, which would not have always been my story. But we look at this, and the first time I remember having like an abundance of money was actually after my high school graduation party. And I don't know if you had one yourself, but in our neighborhood and our upbringing, like everybody had a graduation party, you invite your friends and your, your friends' parents. And really it was just this fancy way to have everybody just pass money back and forth. It's crazy, right? But that, that's kind of what it was if we're dishonest with ourselves. And so you get done and right, I don't know how much money I had. Maybe it was a thousand bucks. Maybe it was 2,000, 1,500. It, it was a big number though. Now, of course, where, where I come from, I needed that to jumpstart my college career. And whether that was for food or things for my dorm room or whatever it was, I had to invest that money into myself. And so, get down to college, and of course, still gotta to, to get a car, or still have to get around, get food, get a job. It Didn't quite stop for me. I don't. What about for you? Right. Think about it. Did you get to work your way through college? Did you get to party your way through college? Was it some of both? How did that look for you? And so I'm at college, and I'm walking around campus. It's fall. It's nice, right? There's co-eds around. I'm at the University of Cincinnati, personally. I loved it down there. I'm walking around, and there's no surprise an attractive young lady. This attractive young lady is at a table in the middle of what's called the quad. It wasn't called that back then. And she's basically saying, hey, you know, come over here. Well, that's not a hard sell for a, you know, hormone crazed eighteen year old. So sure, I come waddling over, you know, backpack on, little nervous freshman. I says, hey, you know, do you currently have any credit cards? I said, no, of course not, right? I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm a young, I'm, I'm like a kid. I'm not supposed to have credit cards. Those are adult things. Right? She goes back and forth and starts talking about how great it is that. And so you know you can apply for it, and almost everybody gets approved. And when you apply, you get this thing, right? And maybe the thing was a T-shirt that was branded with the University of Cincinnati. Maybe it was a coffee mug. Maybe it was a protein shaker. Who knows what it was at that moment? What I do know is an attractive woman was talking to me, wanted to give me something free, and she said I could possibly get a credit card. Sound familiar to you? Uh, so in my world, it was quick, right? My handwriting's really sloppy, and I figured, man, if I just scribble enough on here, I can save face in front of the pretty woman, because I don't I probably don't really need a credit card. I can get the free stuff, and I can go about my day. So I scribbled on it, right? A little, little tough to read. I hand it to her and she looks down, she goes, Okay, looks good. Thanks. Here's your gift, whatever it was. All right, we smile, and of course, back then I had a, absolutely no testicular fortitude, so I was not going to hit on the woman, ask her out, have an additional conversation. I had no Charm, charisma, panache. No confidence either, if we're going to be honest with ourselves. And so what ends up happening, right, is go about the rest of my day and series of days. And then at some point in the future, handful of weeks, get this nice little envelope in the dorm room mailbox. It says, Capital One. Actually, take that back. It had nothing on the outside, right? It looked very ominous, right? There's no window on it. And you hold it and there's something hard in it. I, I rip it open. I look at it. And it says, congratulations, you've been approved. Got a $500 credit limit. I'm like, Man, get out of here. I got a credit card. This is great. It's like someone just gave me a free $500. Now, of course, I see the APR on the thing is, you know, I think maybe 22.24 or some astronomically high number, but it doesn't bother me. Right, because I'm looking at it like free money. And why did I look at it like free money? Well, it starts, of course, because my parents and I never really had in-depth money conversations. Then let's talk about college as a, as an institution. Right, I wasn't fortunate enough to be able to write a check personally for college, so you had to fill out some paperwork. Right? you had to fill out some paperwork with the federal government. You know, the FAFSA form here in the U.S. And from there, one thing leads to another, and you get a little bit of a government assistance from old back then. I think it was Sally May financial institution. Right? So She's lending me some money. I'm excited. That's no big deal. Plus I get a little scholarship for, I guess, getting some decent grades on my ACT. I'm, I'm being facetious because I got really good grades on my ACT, got a really good score. And so it's like the debt just is, is expected because you look and you're like, okay, well, college is fifteen thousand dollars a year, but it doesn't really matter, right? I'm just paying when I'm done. I will have sixty grand. Sixty grand is no big deal, and doesn't feel like it because there's no hooks into it. Like, you don't understand the interest. You don't. It's not that you don't understand it, but there's no tangible nature to it. It's just there, right? So this is all this us as individuals being latched onto the financial industry's tit, basically. And so then you get the the credit card that I'm discussing, and that's exciting because like every good, prudent financial shepherd, you get the $500 credit card, what's the first thing you do? You're excited, you talk to your buddies, you go buy them pizza, and you buy them beer. So imagine that $500 credit card inside of two months is all the way tapped out. There is nothing left on it. Zero. But it's no big deal because you start to get the, the statement, and it's like, Man, you just have to pay 36 bucks a month. I'm like, wait, wait, I spent 500 bucks and I just have to, it's only 36 or 37 bucks a month? I can make that happen, right? I got this part time job and I can hustle around a little bit. I can, I always, I'll pay, I'll pay this thing. That's no big deal. And right then you use the summers back at home, stack up some more cash, pay down the credit card bills, do whatever it is that you do, feel a little bit more breathing room just to kind of gas for air. And get back to, get back to the, the school side of things. And of course, this happens, right? For four years, for some of us, some of us five, six, seven, eight, gosh, some of us with undergrad degrees have been in school for 10 years, and also those PhDs that would be listening. And so during this time period, you've accumulated this massive amount of debt. You've got some credit cards, one, maybe two, that are just about pinging off the limit, but you're excited. You got the college degree, and now you're set. Right now, we're going to go out and get a job. And for me personally, I remembered, man, forty thousand dollars a year was that was that number. I was going to make forty thousand dollars a year as an engineer, as much as fifty grand. Like, man, that is halfway to a hundred thousand dollars. I can't wait till the day I make a hundred thousand dollars. I'll be so rich. I can't. I won't even know what to do with that money. And I believe that. Right? So you get out of get out of school, and I'm not exactly into my dream job yet. But I'm dating this great girl at this point. And this girl, her grandfather worked for General Motors. And if you haven't heard of this before, there was a time in life, and I don't know if it still exists now, where if you had a family member that worked for General Motors, you could buy a vehicle at Employee cost and employee cost in General Motors vehicles is very small, number down on the left hand side of the the invoice. It was something nobody really spoke about. It was you, you had to know what you were looking for, and you literally couldn't get it because the General Motors would reimburse the dealership for the money they didn't make selling the car. And so, I'm out of school, got this girl, gray girl, whose gra- grandfather. Right, work for General Motors. I said, look, let's leave the booming metropolis of Mansfield, Ohio. Let's hop in our car together. At that point, not our car, but my car. I believe at that point, I either had a 98 Mercury Sable that was silver or a 98 Pontiac Grand Prix that was silver. I know it was silver. I don't remember which one. I'll go with the Sable. So drive down to Columbus, come upon this dealership called Dan Tobin Pontiac GMC. Chevrolet. Oddly enough, as I'm recording this episode, the dealership happens to be about 200 yards behind me. We come down, look at all the cars on the lot. There's this beautiful, beautiful black Pontiac Grand Prix GXP. And in case you're not a car aficionado like so many aren't, the Grand Prix GXP had the 5.3 liter V8. Out of the Corvette that was crammed into the engine bay of this four-door sedan, and the unique part about this, it wasn't a rear-wheel drive car; it was a front-wheel drive car. So the front tires were wide; they were wider than the back. It was just a monster car. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, man, I didn't even know this car existed when I came down. I was coming down for something completely different, but I saw this, and it was black with five-spoke, you know, alloy wheels, Alcantara leather seats, the Bose stereo system the navigation unit, like everything. And I'm man, I got I to gotta have this. I got to get me this car. right? I'm a car guy. I've always been a car guy. So I right, go inside, figure out the, the lease numbers on it. And somehow, right, I tell them, look, I, I can't imagine how much credit, right? Some student loans. Got this credit card that I've had for four or five years that, right, I'm, the balance is low at this point. It might even be paid off. I said I don't don't think you will be able to get me approved, but let's give it a shot. They come back. Grant, I've had maybe two months on the job. I've been working all the way through college, but no real job time. Two months on the job, not a lot of money. I might have been making at that point maybe three grand a month, right top line. So I'm I'm taking home about eh, eh, maybe two grand a month, twenty one hundred bucks. Like, yep, you're approved. And right, if you give us your car, you give us that nice car you have as a down payment. We'll cut you a check back for a certain dollar amount that you need. But you're right, your payment's gonna be about 300. I think 37 bucks. We'll say 340. We're gonna make it easy numbers between you and I. I Hope that's okay. And so it's 340 bucks. And I'm like, man, this is crazy. I can make this work. So I step outside. And I'm like, hold on, I gotta call my insurance company. Right, that's my that's my saving grace. I'm gonna call my insurance agent, who happens to be a good friend of mine. And I'm gonna ask him what the insurance is. Maybe, maybe he'll be able to talk me out of it. I call him. He runs the numbers. Ah, oh, Ryan's gonna be about 120 bucks a month. Maybe a little more. He's like, man, that's a killer car. You should absolutely get that. Okay, I'm sold. Right, 120 bucks. I'm thinking, okay, 340 for the car, 120 bucks for insurance, 460 bucks. Yeah, it's a lot. I'm only bringing home two grand, twenty one hundred. But man, I love cars. Let's do it. I'll figure it out. Sign the paperwork. Drive that thing home, smiling ear to ear. Bring it to the insurance agent the next day. I said, "Buddy, I gotta gotta get my, you know, gotta get this thing insured. Get the VIN number, do it all." He goes, "Man, I don't know what I messed up yesterday, but sorry, it's not a, it's not 120 bucks. It's 320 bucks." I say, "Wait, excuse me." He goes, "Yeah, it's 320 bucks. I'm sorry, man. It's no big deal, right? I'm like, it's a huge deal. I don't have that money." I'm call the dealership and I've already signed a legally binding contract and I've already put, by, at that point, right, 200 miles on the car, maybe more. So there's no take backs. My insurance buddy isn't going to eat the cost, right? That's not, things just happen. And so now all of a sudden, my expense just for this car, just for this car, is almost $700 a month. It's crazy, right? I'm bringing home two grand, maybe $2,100, and $700 is going to an automobile. I'm not blaming another person for my poor decisions, but I am stating there was no financial literacy I was ever given. I'm still now really, now truly, fully indoctrinated into having right that that suction right on to the bank's tit, right? It's just there for me. Then of course, what ends up happening? Well, you get you get a better job. Right? Life progresses. It's not all doom and gloom. I was able to continue making money. It didn't bankrupt me to have that car. And I figured my way out through it, much like you might've done. Then you find the next job and the next job. And for me, that second next job was the, the automotive world, right where I'm finally at the point where that, that first full year in the business, I made just about $50,000. Right, So more money comes in, more money comes in, I'm living with my buddy, my, actually my finance manager, who's a good friend of mine. I'm living in part of his house. And I'm able to make it work. Of course, at that point, I get a, a demo to drive, and I'm able to put my car on, swap a lease, and get out of it, and all these things are going on. And my personal story, I eventually moved to Columbus, as you may know. Ended up working at another car dealership. Right? End up eventually running a Mercedes-Benz store down here. And now we get into the thing of what you're supposed to do next. Right? What are you supposed to do after you get done with college and you get the job and you buy the car? Right? You, you Probably during that time, you rented a nice place to live, which is, of course, the dumbest thing you can do because you're spending money on rent that's at a high dollar amount instead of a low dollar amount because it should actually be the lowest thing you can tolerate right now because you're in a transitional period. Our ego doesn't allow. Then want to keep up with everybody else. Nobody really tells us that, and if they do, we certainly can't hear it because we think we're, we think we've got it made now. We think we have all this figured out. Now that we have, as I called it, a big boy job. Right, I got a job that I'm making real money, and things are good. Things aren't only good; things are great. But are they really? Not so much. So get the job down here in Columbus. And the next thing you do is you buy the house right? You buy the house. I start looking for houses. And this is where most people that I know completely tank. And I halfway tanked. And I didn't have the the knowledge that I have now. You see, what happens is when you look at houses, you'll get pre-qualified, right? At least that's what I did first time. You'll find a mortgage broker that you like, takes on all your information, He runs you through his system or her system. Says, Ryan, right? You can afford the bank's willing to lend you $350,000 based off your income for a house. And of course, you pay that back over the next 30 years at this interest rate. Great. Great. Right? I'm excited. I'm like, I I can buy a $350,000 house. Now, before I get into all these numbers, I want to share some things with you. Here in Columbus, Ohio, here in actually Powell, the area we live, it's it is what it is. But the average home value here is about four hundred grand, right? And so, some of the numbers I'm going to share with you are based around the facts of my life. That the average home here, not a not a mansion, not a palatial palace, but just an average home, it's about four hundred thousand dollars here. Something that they're all very, very nice homes, but right, what we're looking at, you know half million And so as you look right and I'm, I'm having conversations with these mortgage guys and I'm going out and looking at, at houses and seeing what what exists, it becomes fascinating to me. So I'm looking at houses and they're pushing me towards a 30 year note just like they're probably pushing you as they're pushing us towards this towards this loan number towards this different size house, It's fascinating because I never really stopped to think what I could actually afford, what made sense to me. I was looking at what they said I could afford. Now, from where I sit, I wish someone would have sat down and told these things to me, but they didn't. So I happened to fall in love with a $225,000 house. And your first-time homeowner's program, because the bank wants you to stay attached to them, you can typically get approved with no money down your first time. First-time homebuyers program. A FHA loan, I think it's called. I am also not a mortgage broker or banker, so if I'm messing this up, just deal with it. But you get this first-time home buyers program where you're required to put almost no money down. You get a great interest rate. You just can't sell the house for a period of years, and they're encouraging, right? Homeownership is the way to go. And I'm not saying it's not, but think about this. So I just bought, in this hypothetical world, I did not, I just bought a... $250,000 home. And maybe, maybe that's a house that you would like to own yourself. You might hear some typing in the background. I am literally going to type out the exact example. You see, if you bought a $225,000 home and your interest rate was, right, right now it's pretty low, let's go 3.06 over 30 years. Your total mortgage cost for a two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars home would be three hundred forty-four grand. So you spend an extra one hundred twenty thousand dollars on that house. Where if you took a fifteen-year loan and you went up to three point one five, your payment is fifteen seventy, right? So it's six hundred dollars more, but it only costs you 282000 dollars for the house. And so that's where everybody gets you. I see these homes that we're quote unquote supposed to buy because it's the thing to do is you get out of college, you get the job, you buy the car, you might find the girl, but you got to find the house. And nobody tells you that you should be putting at least 20% down, bare minimum 10%. Nobody, nobody explains that to you. But let's say you were fortunate, like I I was fortunate. I had the ten percent down. I remember being so proud that I could write a twenty-five thousand dollars check and have it clear, and still have money left over. I remember still having twelve thousand dollars in my bank account when I wrote the check for the down payment for the house. I'm like, man, I have made it. I bought this house. I'm financing two hundred grand. I got a good thirty-year mortgage. Life is killer right now. Right, but the trap of the thirty-year mortgage. Is number one, you're gonna pay for this house for an eternity, thirty years, right? I bought the house when I was 25. There's no chance I was actually to keep that house till I was 30. Second, right, that whole mindset of, man, you know, houses are great investments. Let's say I bought that thing for 225. Let's say I put the 20 grand down, and let's say I took the 30 year note on it, and let's say I only finance the 200 grand. Like, we'll make this real world. I still don't own this house. I'll spend $310,000 over 30 years on this home. I'll spend an extra $110,000 in interest. Half over, I would have paid 50% more for that home than the actual purchase price. And so the question would be during that time period, what other ways could you utilize the money? Another conversation for another episode, I suppose. And so right your... Instead of buying based off of a 15-year mortgage with at least 10% down, we fall victim to first-time homeowner's program, no money down, 30-year mortgage. Congratulations, you're stuck again. And you're stuck again because your mortgage broker or banker who gets paid on the difference in the money that he lends you, right? He's getting paid on the total interest over the course of the loan. Maybe. I don't know right now. Maybe it's different, but that's what it used to be. So he's got vested interest in, of course, getting you the best rate possible, but making sure you take it off for the longest time possible, because that's how he gets paid. And so, sure, he's got your best interest in mind, because he's getting you as much money as he can, So, because he knows you want the nicest house you can get. But can we not kid ourselves? Right now, I'm 36 years old. If at 25, I had bought that house and did a 15-year note, not a 30, and I had kept the house and not been an idiot, which I'm going to cover. I basically, I basically have it paid off right now, and with the appreciation that house currently today is worth yeah, maybe a little spicy right now in today's economy, go back right before coronavirus, it's about a $240,000 house. Not too bad, right? I would have had another four years left to pay. It would have been mind free and clear, and if I would have been smart and had I actually done it that way, I could have. As I was going into my 31st year on this planet and I was struggling financially, I could have refinanced the house. I could have taken out the equity. I could have done another 15-year note and I still would have been fine. But instead, I was in a position which I had to take the rental income from that property and I was robbing Peter to pay Paul and I was using that money to float my life, which pushed that property into foreclosure. I share all this because these situations that exist right now in our personal finances we create. Right? Your first home out of college? And do the 15 year. Treat that as the jump off, right? That's, That's the starting point for your life. And get that thing rolling. Get equity built into it. Get used to homeownership. Realize the fact that if you can't afford it at 15 years, and you can't put at least 10% down. You just can't afford it right now. There's no shame in saying I can't afford something. See, I used to think there was shame in saying I couldn't afford stuff. It made me embarrassed. It made me think I was less than. I say it all the time. I can't afford a Rolls Royce right now. I don't feel comfortable affording a three-quarter million dollar home right now. I suppose I could. I do It doesn't feel right to me. I say I can't even go afford a new car right now, right? It's recalibrating why we do what we do, why we say what we'd say, because here we are in the situation that's hypothetical, but it's not because is a story of my life, right? So then I start making more and more money. And so my spending habits are not staying flat. Most of ours don't. You get a raise, you save additional money for two months, and then you're living quality increases to meet the way that you now are earning money. That's why the trappings of the middle class exist, because we keep not being able to delay our gratification. Go back to the car world when I was in. Man, had I kept that house, had I done the 15-year note, and had those first two or three checks where I was making 60, 70, 80 grand a month, had I just doubled down instead of buying a car, instead of buying watches, instead of buying private jets and bottle service... Had I just paid down the mortgage, I would have owned something free and clear by the time I was 30. But instead, I had to have the American Express black card. I had to make sure that I could show up in the nicest clothes, and the Ferragamo loafers. Shoot, I still have a Ferragamo bag that I used to carry around with my laptop. I'm not knocking material things, but it's delaying the thought that we need them in the moment. Because again, to take this full circle and t- tie it into buying that first home and only taking the 15-year note and putting at least 10% down and then living drastically behind your means. See, it has to be a race for you at that moment that you spend as little as you possibly can until you have three months of operating capital in your hand. And what is operating capital? Operating capital for your life as I'm going to define it, your mortgage payment, all of your electricity, all of your utilities at the highest month they've ever been, as much as you went out to eat over the past month or two months, all the bills you have, all the things that if your life, if your income stopped, that your life would change 0% over the next three months, you wouldn't even have to think about it. And this is in liquidity. This is not in investments. If you are not seeing right now that certain investment vehicles are out of your control, you need to open up your eyes. The fact, imagine right now as you're listening to this show, how great you would feel if you had three months of cash in the bank right now. Right now. You had no credit card debt. You had no debt that was carrying over your head, anything major. And you had at least three months of cash sitting around so your life didn't stop at all. I feel pretty good, right? But most people don't do it because we don't have the discipline. And I didn't have the discipline. Right? I'm telling all this to you from a place of, of love. Like I was broke at 31. 30, 31. Bankrupt. Truck repossessed. Rental homes and foreclosure. Everything was bad. Because I didn't. Have somebody, or I wasn't willing to listen. There were people that would have shared this with me. I just wasn't willing to listen. And so, hopefully, you were listening to this. That this was actually encouraged by a good friend of mine, James, who happens to be working with me in some capacities, who's been to the office before, who's followed my journey over the past few years. And he's the one that reached out and said, Man, that episode was one of the best you've had. Can you break it down more on some personal finance stuff? Absolutely. Push back and push back and push back. And yes, 401ks, let's talk about that. If you work inside of a company that has dollar matching 401k, invest at the level in which they'll match your, your investment. If they'll do dollar for dollar up to a certain dollar amount, do everything you can to push that in as long as your three months operating cash is stable. Because what nobody tells you when you're investing in that If a tragedy comes up and you need that cash, you're gonna pay 20 plus percent tax to get that money out. So all the fancy growth that you're gonna see in it over the course of your life, until you are stable, that fancy growth is kind of worthless. You see, all this eventually ties back into psychology to me. You Look at Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. When your base level needs are met above all else, food, water, shelter, interpersonal communication, the feel of love and admiration, when those things are locked in, You're able to make better decisions to grow your bank account and help other people. What's the best way you can feel comfortable in growing your bank account? If all your needs were taken care of and there's no shame in telling your friends, I can't go out to eat because I want to save the cash. Then you buy the house with the right amount of money down and you delay the car. I'm doing it right now. I have a very specific automobile that I want. I'm going to delay and delay and delay until I can buy it. Now I know that I'm also a product of my environment. And the fact there was a time in my life in which I went broke has created new buying habits for me, new spending habits. And they're not always the most healthy. I get the paying cash for a car when you can borrow money at 1.9% interest and I can invest in the market and get as much as 10% or 15% doesn't really make sense, right? For me, the stability of knowing that I had the money and I wasn't buying something on credit makes me feel good. And so the way around that, when you get to that point, because I also believe we shouldn't anymore for feel-good things, cars, watches, bikes, jewelry, clothes. If you can't buy it in cash twice over, two times, you should walk away from it. Let me say that again. If I want a fifty thousand dollar car, if I can't buy two of them in cash, I don't need that fifty thousand dollar car. You say, well, wait, 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 time out, Ryan. What if you finance it? What if there was one point nine percent financing? My belief is still that I'm about to overextend myself, even with the cash flow of my life being able to support that. Because look, what I'm saying is that fifty thousand dollar car on a sixty month note, which we're also going to cover, I would want that fifty thousand dollars in a in a separate account. That's just for that car that I could never touch. I think that's the safest way to go. And the other side of things that we get into in the automotive world is right these long-term financing deals. I'm seeing it happen again right now. Of course, stimulus. Everybody wants to get the economy moving. I love that, but an 84-month car note is ridiculous. Zero percent, great, fine. But let's look at let's look at your buying cycle and let's look at your driving patterns. You see, if you're someone that likes a new car every two or three years, if you take a 66, 72, or 84 month loan with any sort of interest on it and you don't put money down to offset tax title license, and if you don't put enough money down to offset the depreciation when you drive your new car off the lot, which is at least 20%, you're screwed. When you want out of the car in three years, you're going to have negative equity that a dealership is going to have to tack onto your loan and you're going to keep paying interest on money that you already borrowed. Let me explain what I mean by that. I'm going to slow it down. We're going back to this $50,000 car I'm sharing. $50,000 car here in Ohio, let's just say you're 10% in tax tag title license. It's five grand. And you're going to lose 20% when you drive it off the lot because the dealership has to be able to make money. That's their profit margin, all this stuff. So right, that's another 10 grand. So if I can't put 15 grand down on the $50,000 car, I also shouldn't buy that car. Just point blank. It's not a good fiscal decision because if something goes wrong and I need to get rid of it, I don't have equity in it. See, cars are not depreciating assets. Cars are depreciating liabilities. And until you start looking at your life financially as things that are assets and liabilities, assets, things that have value, that can continue to grow value, and liabilities something that Has an expense that could cost you money, you're gonna keep tripping up. Now, again, I'm no Dave Dave Ramsey. I'm no financial genius. I'm sharing all this from a place of being broke and wishing I would have done things so much different. But being fortunate that I didn't, so I can share them with you. You see, we push and we push and we push and we do all these things to keep up with the Joneses. But when one bad decision leads to the next, you're stuck in this system forever. Some of the most fortunate position I've ever been in my life. My wife and I have more financial stability in this moment than we've ever had before. I don't say that to brag or to be boisterous, but while the rest of the world is panicked, we get to grow and expand. We get to grow and expand and look at, man, are there potential businesses we can become investors in? Can I become a partner in something? Can I double down on my ad efforts? Can I do things to swallow up market share to grow in this unique time? Can I help employ more people? To get more things done. All things in which had an old version of me been in the driver's seat. I would have been scared to death. Because there was no money. And so the lessons personally from where I sit. Go ahead and get yourself that credit card. Credit cards are great. But don't ever spend money on a credit card that you can't pay off that, that month. Don't do it. Use it to get your points. Use it to double down on things. But don't use it to live off of. If you need it to live off of. Rip it up right now, burn it, shred it, get rid of it. When you go out and look at cars, wait, wait, and wait, especially when you're fresh out of school or if you're driving an old jalopy now. If it gets you around, deal with it for a little bit longer. It'll be all right. Save up your cash and be able to always put down tax title and license and 20% on a new car or 10% on a used. Never finance a car for more than 60 months. If I was in the driver's seat, I'd tell you don't finance it more than 48. You can never go wrong if you finance for 48 months and you put the tax title and license down and at least 10% unused, 20% new, you can never end up in a bad position. When you look at your first home, you're going to buy 15-year mortgage, not 30. At least 10% down. This is what I feel works the best. This is the way that I live my life. This is not the way you have to live yours. But this will change what happens in the future. There's a lot of different ways to structure this. But my goal is to have you start to disassociate yourself from the quote-unquote system, from the tit of the banking system that is going to hold you captive for the rest of your life because right, we haven't even talked, spoken about those sixty thousand dollars of student loans that are just looming over your head. That after it's been deferred for the first three months out of college for me, and I've got the six hundred dollar month, well, seven hundred dollar month car expense, then they call me up and like, yeah, you're gonna you know, six hundred bucks a month for for student loans, huh? That's thirteen hundred bucks a month, and I'm only bringing in twenty one. Because they don't care about how much my car was because I didn't need to get that car. So I have 800 bucks to live off of, which ends up being food, gas, cell phone bill, somewhere to live. It's miserable. So I'm not saying don't go to college. Not saying any of those things, but do everything you can to be paying down on those things during the time in which you're there, because it's a pain in the rear end to do it later. Next episode, I share with you. Tune in for the next episode where I'm going to break down some of these same mindsets around business and the strategy and structure around cash flow, which can also apply to your home life. I'm Ryan Nidell wishing you truly unlimited success.